the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Life in Colorado. I'm Mark Howington, and with me, Dr. Ted Pauline. Uh, now, Doctor, tell us first of all your credentials, and welcome to the show. By the way, because we we want to we want to establish first of all who you are and and why you are qualified to speak to the issue of what's going on lately with COVID. Sure, I appreciate the to being uh, being on with you, uh, Mark. Uh, it's always an honor. And um, like you said, I'm Dr. Ted Pauline. I have a uh, PhD in chemistry and a medical degree. I am a uh, board-certified internal medicine physician and also board-certified in clinical informatics, which is really the use of uh, informatics is the use of computer information technology in the delivery of healthcare. So I have uh, done many years of research and patient practice um, dating back into the uh, 1980s. So I have been involved in being on the end of basic research and patient care. I I would say all of that means that you are smarter than I am, especially when it comes to questions about what's going on in COVID. And so I appreciate your time. I really do. This is, is obviously... Uh, it's on everybody's mind, especially, in fact, one of the subjects we really want to cover is with vaccines that have been released. Now, a couple of them before the end of the year. There are also a couple of more that are coming down the pipeline that are that are testing in those phases and and hopefully will be approved soon. So let's kind of start there. Can you give us just sort of a rundown on the vaccines that are available now? What would you say the differences are? Are there pluses and minuses? And an article that I read, too, uh, said that, yeah, as a patient, you might not necessarily have a choice. It just happens to be what facility you're going to and which vaccine they got. So if you exactly. could... Exactly. Yeah, if you could clarify some of that. So there's a, a vaccine that was produced by uh, a joint effort between BioNTech which is a German company, and Pfizer in association with Oxford University in uh, England. And uh, so you'll hear it called, most likely called it the Pfizer uh, vaccine. And then there's one developed here in the United States called Moderna. And both the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine have gotten emergency use approval. Uh, Both that happened in, in December for use uh, in the United States, and uh, the Pfizer one is approved in Europe. Also, the Moderna one right now is under review for approval in Europe also. Outside of Europe and the United States, there's two other vaccines. Uh, One was developed in China. One was developed in Russia. Those are being used just in those two respective countries. There's also one has gotten provisional approval, and right off the top of my head, uh, I think it's being used in Brazil. I'm not sure right off the top of my head what other countries it's being used in, and that's the AstraZeneca 
uh, vaccine. And so let's just talk about the two that are being used within the U.S., the Moderna and the Pfizer. Good, both thank of you. Those, yeah, both of those are what's called mRNA vaccines. And so people will hear often, oh, this is new technology. They, didn't, they just rushed this to market. How do we know about the safety of this? Well, actually, mRNA for various uses has been studied dating back 20, 25 years. Now, it's true that this technology is the first time it's been used within humans at this large of scale. It's been used in humans to help treat certain cancers, but the technology is the first time it's been used to to, um, develop a vaccine for use in humans. But we, we should understand that, yes, it's new in that respect, but not new in a track record of understanding how mRNA works and how it works within our system. So that should give people at least uh, some, some uh, degree of confidence in this technology. And that's we'll talk about this a little bit later on, but I'll just tell you now that I I, for Christmas, I went over to my mom and stepdad's, and they uh, they are in their late seventies, early eighties, and we uh, the four of us that sat around an outside table, uh, we sat in their backyard to social distance. Um, essentially, we had four different opinions on whether or not we were going to get this vaccine. One was like, "Yep, I'm as soon as I can get it, I'm getting it." Uh, one was like, "No way, no how." The other was yeah. like, "I'm going to wait and see." And the other one, which was me, I'm, I'm sort of undecided, so I'm glad that I can have this conversation with you. How in the world do we go about, you know, again, four people sitting around a table and we had four different ideas about this vaccine and are we going to take it or not? How do people measure this? How do they weigh it? Well, some of it is obviously these, these two vaccines went through very extensive clinical trials. So they first started doing clinical trials. Uh, comparing doses of the vaccine in people that actually got it and doses that were a placebo dose uh, in other patients and have been looking at this in uh, 70,000 people, now much more than that, but in the clinical trials, it was about 70,000. Half got the real vaccine, half did not. So about 35,000 got the real vaccine and were followed for six months. what we saw in that six-month time period was that there was pretty much normal type of side effects that we see in almost every vaccine. You know, some soreness at the arm, maybe a couple days of fatigue, maybe a low-grade fever for a day or two, uh, body aches for a day or two, and really all that are indications that your own immune system is mounting a response and creating an immune response to, in this case, it's the base spike protein of the coronavirus itself. That's the only thing this mRNA vaccine was, was programmed to do, is create part of the coronavirus, and that was just the spike protein. The spike protein is what the coronavirus uses to attach to our own cells to start the infection. Well, our own when, when we give the... Uh, mRNA vaccine to somebody, their own immune system recognizes this, hey, this is a foreign protein. I need to start mounting an immune response. And so those few early day side effects 
are really an indication that your immune system is working to create an immune response to this foreign protein. Now, I know that in some cases, and I think one was in Canada, maybe another one in England, not sure that I've heard of one here, but there were some severe allergic reactions. Yep. Talk about that. Yeah, so there was actually a severe allergic reaction in a person who got it in Alaska. I'm aware of a a couple cases in England. You'd mentioned Canada. I wasn't aware of one in Canada, but that doesn't mean it didn't happen. And that can be true with any vaccine. We know that vaccines can produce allergic reactions, sometimes very severe allergic reactions, but in all, they're very rare. So let's take how rare is this? So right now in the U.S., about 5 million people have gotten one of these two vaccines, either Moderna or the Pfizer one. If we look worldwide, it's about 30 million people have gotten one of these two vaccines since they were approved and went on market in December. So when you're talking about an allergic reaction Let's even inflate it a little bit more. I mean, you mentioned one in Canada. I know of two in England. I know one in Alaska. Let's 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 say we have five. Let's even triple that, and let's say there's 15 severe allergic reactions after 30 million doses. That's a pretty low risk. Yeah, I like that percentage. I do indeed. Yeah. So now let's let's compare that to the risk of contracting COVID and possibly dying of COVID. If you're in one of the very high risk groups, so you're over 70 years old, maybe you have some diabetes, maybe you're a little overweight, the risk of dying from COVID if you're in that over 70 group is approaching six to 7%. If you're over 80%, it's approaching eight to 10% of dying. So You know, is there a risk of having this vaccine? Sure. Are there some potential problems that could develop in the year ahead after a vaccine? Sure. But those are much, much smaller than the actual risk of contracting the COVID and actually dying from it if you're in one of these high-risk groups. Mm, Good information. Dr. Ted Poline is who I'm talking to on Life in Colorado Dr. Pauline, let's talk a little bit about this new strain of of coronavirus that popped up in England and has made its way to the United States. In fact, here in Colorado, we had the first in the nation of this new strain appear here, and I've heard of several other cases. Is is this cause for concern? I mean, are we going to have to go through this all over again, or do you know if the vaccine will protect this new strain, or do we even know? Well, it's a really good point to to talk about this. And this is not something to be unexpected. Viruses, all viruses, are mutating constantly because they reproduce so fast. And when you have reproduction, you have errors in, in reproducing the genetic material in the virus itself, and hence you create new new strains of the virus. This is true with influenza, the flu virus. And that's why you need to get a The flu virus is notorious for changing constantly and major changes. That's why you need a flu vaccine every year, because the flu that was prominent a year ago isn't going to be the flu that's prominent next year. So new flu vaccine every year. 
And that's what we're seeing with the coronavirus is we're seeing some changes. It's not nearly as big a changes as we see with the flu virus. But worldwide, there's maybe a half a dozen different strains. Some of them are very minor differences. Uh, some of them are a little bit more profound. So the one that was first identified in the United Kingdom uh, seems to be more infectious. In other words, it's spread more easily than the original coronavirus, but it doesn't seem to be more lethal or have um, worse disease. It just seems to be spread more easily. Now, the good news here is when they've done, actually look at the genetics, it doesn't appear that that base spike protein is, is really affected very much by these changes in the coronavirus. So the thought is that the mRNA vaccines that make this spike protein uh, to create the immune response, it should still work pretty well because the mutations, like I say, haven't changed that spike protein very much. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to just call that good news then because yeah. yeah, when I first heard about the new strain, I, I truly was concerned that maybe this might be like starting from, from you know, ground zero and, and who yeah. knows, you know, we could be be at this all over again. So it sounds like good news that, that the vaccine will help. So phase one and phase uh, 1A and 1B, and then phase two, phase three is what the governor has said. Uh, we're going to roll out these vaccine distributions, phase 1A happening now. Uh, they're expecting it to be completed by the middle of January. And and basically, that's people working directly with COVID-19 patients and residents and staff and long-term care facilities. And then uh, Phase 1B, in, in, in some areas, this is already happening for people over 70 years of age, healthcare workers, those who are, are in home health, hospice situations, dental workers. They, they even say, um, you know, essential uh, journalists. And then Phase 2 uh, people 60 to 69 and and those with some chronic medical conditions, obesity, diabetes, chronic lung disease, et cetera, there. And then phase three, which is uh, not until the summer of, of this year, uh, is kind of the rest of us. Um, is, does that mean that, uh, you know, we're, I've heard the goal is herd immunity. So, yeah. I, I mean, how, how is that going to play into you know, especially those of us who are at the bottom of the list to get get the vaccine. How, how do you think that's going to play out? Well, obviously, the people at the highest risk of exposure and getting infected and those at the highest risk of having severe disease from corona are, are the ones being prioritized to get the vaccine first. And, and really, it matches what you just said. It's those people that are on the front line with lots of exposure potential, uh, that should be immunized first to prevent that spread. And when you, we talk about herd immunity, it, it means that enough people have either had the infection from coronavirus to create their own immune response and then their own immunity uh, for a future infection, or they've gotten the immunization to create that immune response. And when we get enough people that have protection, that means even if it's out in the environment and being spread, it's spread to people that it cannot infect anymore. And therefore, the number of people that can keep spreading it keep going down. 
And when we get to a level where where we have enough people that are immunized against it, either naturally or by the vaccine, then the amount of spreading keeps going down and down and down. And the figures are, for if you just take any infection out there, we usually say, well, you need about 70% of the people to be immune to really cut dramatically the amount of spread of the disease. So that's what most people are saying. We need about 70% immunized or protected by infection, uh, that they had the infection already. There are some people saying with this new strain that's a little bit more infectious, but maybe not more deadly, we might need 80% uh, people to be immune to see a dramatic decrease in the spread of corona infections or, uh, in, in our country. And that's because, as you say, that one's much more contagious. Dr. Ted Pauline right. is my guest here on Life in Colorado. And Dr. Pauline, so uh, talk about then uh, one of the main questions that has come up. For example, my wife was one of these who actually has tested positive for the for the coronavirus antibodies, which means somewhere along the line she had it. And we're thinking, I probably did too. I haven't been tested for the antibodies. But and in fact, when we were the sickest and thought that, that maybe that's when we got it, was actually back in, in uh, January of last year, uh, late January, early February. And we, I mean, we had, before we really knew what the symptoms of COVID sure. were, I, I think we had it. Uh, so she, obviously antibodies that date back maybe that far, should those people be vaccinated? Well, that's a really good question. And the debate right now is maybe those people are on a little bit lower priority list to get vaccinated. But the reason I say that they're on a little bit lower priority list is because the higher risk that haven't gotten the infection or haven't been vaccinated are probably should be vaccinated. But it's not that you shouldn't get vaccinated at all if you've had COVID or proven COVID infection. The reason I say that is that the studies show, and we may learn more as we go along on this, but the studies right now show that if you've been infected with COVID and have developed a good antibody response, your immune response may have a memory up to eight to nine, maybe 10 months. We don't know if it goes beyond that right now, but right now it looks like you can still um, fight off a reinfection up to 10 months after the initial um, infection. Well, that might not be true for everybody. Some people have mild cases and they don't mount a huge immune response. So their immune response may only last three months. Those people that had a more severe infection and were able to fight it off, their immune response may be more robust and may last longer. Uh, so that's where we're still learning whether or not people that get immunized now, are, are we going to need boosters in a year or two from now? We don't know that. Mm. People that got infected, how long is that immune memory going to last? Is it going to last more than that nine or 10 months? Or after a year, we're just as susceptible as if we never had the infection in the first place. We don't know yet. And I think, yeah, that's the, really the bottom line is that this is so new that there literally is no information to draw upon. There's no experience to draw exactly. upon. It's going to have to be and, a wait and, and you see. know, to give, to give people an analogy, 
that maybe they're more familiar with is like tetanus boosters. You know, we we all know we get a tetanus shot when when we're young, and we get another one in our late teens, and then about ten years later we get another one, and about every ten years during adulthood we get a tetanus booster. It's because our own immune system loses the memory for protecting us against the tetanus. And so after about nine or 10 years, our immune memory is so low that we need to get a booster vaccine to boost up that memory to last another nine or 10 years. Dr. Ted Pauline, and one question that I have for you in the five minutes we have left, I'm an elder at my church. Our pastor was asking us this question as, as an elder board to try and make some decisions about what to do with our church. He said, okay, so what sign do we need to return to normal? What conditions are, are going to say, okay, we can meet without social distancing, without masks? When can we plan on having Sunday school, for example, for adults and kids? Uh, when can we have a vacation Bible school? What, what signs are we going to need to have in place to open things back up? Certainly the vaccine is going to help, but yep. there's, there's a lot more probably that needs to be considered. So how would you answer that question? Yeah, well, and so what you're really asking is, when can we get back to more normal? Exactly. <laughs> when, well, and, and that's a really good question. If we look at other diseases, when the, the rate of infection out in the community drops below 5% rate, and when we had that peak here about a month ago in December, you know, community infection rate was over 12%. Wow. And, you know, so like one in, one in 40 people in Colorado were being infected every week. So that's a lot. And, and so we have to get way down below that 10, 12% infection rate. And from other diseases, we know when we get below 5%, then the risk is a lot, lot less. And the other thing you want to combine it with is what we've talked a bit about before is herd immunity. When enough people are protected, the, the risk of spread goes way down. So when we are start approaching that herd immunity, so when we, I don't say we have to get to 70 to 80%, but as we start getting more closer to that 70 to 80%, and we see the, the, the amount of infection in the community is well below 5%, then we know we're getting ahead of this and we can start opening up and be, and seeing more normalcy return. So as I have been listening to various news reports on this, the, basically the, the agreement is, okay, we've got a vaccine, but until, as we already mentioned earlier, we've got these phases, the last phase isn't even going to be completed for most people to get the vaccine until this summer. And so we still need to do things like social distance and wear masks and wash our hands and, and yeah. just keep that in mind. Right, exactly. And, and so, you know, when are we going to hit those parameters that I just talked about, the 5% and the herd immunity? You know, it's going to be later in 2021. So we're not out of it yet, but we sure are starting to see some light at the end of the tunnel. That's, and that's very good news. Dr. Ted Pauline, we've got two minutes left, and at this point in the program, I always like to say, okay, I, I know that there are people who are just tuning in. They're just catching the tail end of this broadcast. So let's rewind. Let's go all the way to, to the beginning and give your elevator speech. We're really talking about COVID vaccines. So give us maybe a two-minute 
uh, synopsis of what we've talked about here today. Yeah, well, we've got two vaccines approved for use in the U.S., the one from Moderna and the one from Pfizer. They are both RNA vaccines. They make one particular part of the protein of the coronavirus. They only make a part of it. That is being used to trigger an immune response when you get the vaccine. That immune response then helps protect those people who got the vaccine against being infected by the coronavirus. And from the studies so far, it appears very safe, minimal side effects. It appears that the risk of contracting the coronavirus and dying from it, if you're in a high-risk group, is much, much greater, orders of magnitude greater than the risk of the vaccine itself or the potential risk of the vaccine itself. So that's why uh, I would say that um, getting the vaccine, if you're on that priority list, is important so that we can turn the corner on this pandemic and bring it under control. One of the things that you also mentioned, and and I'll just bring up again, is that this new strain that that has come through, it looks like it started in Europe and has has made its way here in Colorado into the United States. Looks like the vaccine you, you believe will cover that as well. So far, it appears that it will, that that the mutations in the virus are such that it has not affected that base spike protein of the virus. And that's what the immune, that's what the mRNA vaccine is designed to create a a response to is that spike protein. And it doesn't look like it's really affected that spike protein. So these vaccines should still work on the new strain. Dr. Ted Pauline, thank you so much for being a part of Life in Colorado. 